Thank you for listening to the Society of Critical Care Medicine's iCritical Care Podcast. The iCritical Care Podcast is copyrighted material and all rights are reserved. Statements of fact and opinion expressed in this podcast are those of authors and participants and do not imply an opinion on the part of the Society of Critical Care Medicine or its officers or members. Your host is the Society's Associate Editor for Podcasts, Richard Savell, MD, FCCM. Dr. Savell is the Medical Co-Director of the Surgical Intensive Care Unit at Montefiore Medical Center in New York City practicing under the leadership of Vladimir Kavetin, MDFCCM. To contact the editorial staff of the iCritical Care podcast with questions, comments, or ideas, please email info at sccm.org. Hello and welcome to another edition of the Society of Critical Care Medicine's iCritical Care podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Richard Savell. And today is Tuesday, September 16th, 2008. We have an opportunity today to speak with Dr. Janine Wiener-Kronisch, who is currently the Chief of Anesthesia and Critical Care at Massachusetts General Hospital, and she is a Professor of Anesthesia and Critical Care at Harvard Medical School. It was from her laboratory that an article was published, which was the lead article in the September issue, a uh, September 2008 issue, of critical care medicine. The title is Increased Mortality of Ventilated Patients with Endotracheal Pseudomonas Aeruginosa Without Clinical Signs of Infection. And the reference is Critical Care Medicine, 2008, 36, pages 2495 to 2503. And um, just as a big picture issue before I, I let you go into the details for those who may not have read the article, from what I understood, you screened patients who had been intubated for more than 48 hours, um, and this was over quite a long period of time, I believe, two, uh, two and a half years or longer, and the area that you focused in on were patients with pseudomonas infection, and you came up with um, a fairly reasonable uh, agreed-upon definition of either a high burden or a low burden of pseudomonas, and then whether or not they had evidence clinically of ventilator-associated pneumonia, and you looked at some of their outcomes. And uh, if you want to talk a little bit about the background, how you came up with the study, some of the technical issues of implementing a study like this, uh, you, can, you can start there if you'd like. Okay. So thank you, Rich. Um, so I've always been interested in how clinical definitions are um, come about. And one thing that always bothered me was that despite the fact that several studies have looked at the criteria for ventilator-associated pneumonia, no one had bothered to really show that the criteria were reasonable. And in fact, there have been some studies that suggested they were not very specific or sensitive. Um, that you would find patients who had evidence of pneumonia who didn't have fever, who didn't have white count. Um, yet there's a lot of publications that use this as our crux for defining who's infected versus who's colonized. So we suggested that we would look for doing everyday cultures from people who were intubated and on ventilators for more than 48 hours. Every day we would get specimens, sputum specimens, or endotracheal aspirates to be exact, from these patients and did quantitative cultures. Now, we only looked for pseudomonas. 
we probably need to repeat this for all bacteria, but my particular interest at the time when we started the study was to look for Pseudomonas. And what we found when we did that was that, in fact, if you use the criteria that is typical in all critical care units, that is fever, white count, you didn't really identify the patients who had very high burdens of bacteria. You did sometimes, but none of the criteria that are classically used really identified the patients who had the largest number of bacteria, not consistently. And the patients who had large burdens of bacteria had a very high mortality. So this was very surprising to us. And when you, when you, when you say every day, would you stop checking if you got a positive result? Or no. Did, no. No. So, no. So for their we duration? Every day and every person. And if they didn't have pseudomonas on day, say, day zero, we kept checking to see when they did develop pseudomonas. So everybody in the study, so we, we screened several thousand patients every day. I was going to get to this later, but maybe if you could t- take a few minutes and talk now, especially you know with this recent issue uh, surrounding the Office of Human Research Protections, H- how did you coordinate this through your IRB? And I remember in one part of your paper you mentioned about getting consent only when the cultures or something became positive. Can you talk for a few That's minutes right. about that? Well, okay. So screening patients, you're allowed, since this data was not shared with anyone, we were allowed to get uh, endotracheal aspirates on every patient and culture them. But once we found a positive, we had to consent the patient to continually do it. So it's, I, it was interesting to me you asked why we didn't give that information to physicians. And I would say, here's where I have problems with the IRB. This is not typical behavior of physicians. Whether it should be or not is the issue. Um, do, does anyone do daily screening of endotracheal aspirates in their ICU? No. No, we're taught to do the opposite. That's the fundamental point. That's exactly point. right. You only choose the people who have fever or white counts that you go after. And I think what's important about the study is that we were allowed to look at everybody so that we could show you the problems with the behavior that we exhibit today. And without permission to do that, we wouldn't have been able to do the study and show the flaws in our treatment today. So we did consent the patients who were positive just because then we wanted to collect other samples on them. So we actually didn't obtain any blood directly, but we went to the um, clinical lab, and if they had had blood drawn, we collected blood samples on them. We collected urine samples on them, so we, and we collected other data from their um, reports, their records. So that's why we needed permission for the positive, so that we could give you all the other information that's supplied in the paper. But there was really no intervention. It was all observational. But I would argue that the IRB needs to allow sort of in-depth studies of behavior that's not typically done, that certainly doesn't harm patients. Without it, how can we really verify that what we're doing is is evidence-based? I mean, I I brought it up just because, you know, uh, something as completely benign as using a checklist in an ICU was argued, and so I would imagine them saying that you getting any kind of clinical data, it, I'm just bringing it up as, a, I think, a very interesting point in terms of the balance between doing important research like this and IRB's patient, uh, patient safety and protecting patients, etc. So I see it both ways. I don't ever want to harm patients, but I think to make progress, particularly in critical care and other places where 
it's very difficult to get consent sometimes, needs to, they need to have a broader view. We don't really have enough data to say what we're doing is right. And I think this study really is just the beginning to say, you know, we think we know we're treating infection, and in fact, we're not sure. So let me uh, take the next couple of minutes, present some of your interesting data from the paper, uh, just for the listeners, and then let you make some comments. So you started out with Table 1, which, again, I'm trying to teach fellows in terms of the particulars of the technique you used. You did a Cox proportional hazards, which conceptually, in my mind, is sort of like a multivariate logistic regression analysis applied to a survival curve. Right. And you found, again, fascinatingly, and that's why it's a podcast, is so w- when you looked at it, when you compared patients that had high pseudomonas without VAP compared with all other groups, including hepatic cirrhosis, uh, issues of uh, sepsis, the only positive p-value with a hazards ratio of like 24 was having a high burden of pseudomonas without clinical evidence of VAP. Right. And so I can't imagine you were expecting this. You weren't quite sure how this was going to turn out, right? That is correct. So it was a very surprising finding, but... We reasoned it this way. There's several possibilities. Now, this is correlation. It's not cause and effect, but we are already designing the next study to prove that it's cause and effect. I think that we are very tuned in to the fact that if there's fever and white count, we need to look for a source and treat empirically. So, if you will, those patients are taken care of. And although they still have a mortality, it's not as high as the people who perhaps we're not looking at because they don't have a fever, they don't have a white count, their x-rays not remarkable. So yet they have millions of these very virulent pseudomonas. So either that's a marker of a host that's not doing well, and we suggest that a little bit in the paper, or these pseudomonas are taking over and hurting the host. So I think there's, there's possibly several explanations for this, but clearly... We're not attending to these patients because they're not falling into our classic rubric of these people have an infection. Right. No, I, I want to reemphasize that because that was when you first read the paper, you're like, nah, that can't be right. But then the point that you make is people can be sick and not have our classic definition of being sick. But the fact is, looking at an individual patient, you can't know that outcome unless you look at these people the way you have in terms of groups, right? That is correct. And another point that I wanted to bring up that I haven't talked to you about before, but I would imagine the reviewers would argue, well, the patients with the high pseudomonas uh, burden uh, without VAP versus the high pseudomonas burden and VAP Maybe they were different in terms of how sick they were beforehand or whatever, but the point is in your table three, you you point that all out and that they had very similar Apache scores and SAP scores and SOFA scores. That is correct. So we couldn't discern a difference besides this. Right. And so that their predicted mortality, according to these kinds of measures, classic teaching would be that they were similar. That is right. Uh, And yet this leads nicely into your figure two, where, again, I'm still recovering from looking at this figure. (laughs) <laughs> but so that, again, if I'm getting this right, so the high pseudomonas without VAP, 47% mortality, high pseudomonas with VAP, something that you would think would be awful and is, had only an 18% mortality. That is correct. You've interpreted this perfectly. And so, and then you go through on some other tables focusing on the different causes of death and whether or not it was not receiving appropriate antibiotics. But from what I could tell, that wasn't really it. That's, we could not tell that. 
I mean, the thing is, people get a lot of antibiotics in the ICU, as we're all well aware. Um, and then before I ask you more about that, because that would be some sort of concluding marks, you would say, well, great. Now we have to just take everybody and put them on antibiotics until what, you know? <laughs> no, that's not the point of the paper. The point of the paper is to raise concern among physicians that we really know how to identify infection. And I think this paper is an argument for more research, for looking at various biomarkers to see if we can discern when large burdens of bacteria are associated with lung damage. And I think that what it, I'm not offering a change in clinical practice yet, but for me, what this screams out as we need more data, more specific biomarkers to say bacteria means lung injury, tracheal injury, alveolar injury, that there's what is colonization? It's when you don't see end organ damage from a burden of bacteria. We need more information. And I also think the time lag between identifying, getting culture results takes too long. I'm very keen on bringing molecular medicine to the ICU, which is far more sensitive, far faster, and we need to look at a variety of other organisms that we don't detect by culture, and we're trying to get that data in other studies we're doing. Let me um, let you actually segue into, I guess, sort of the last part of the article where you were measuring the the pseudomonas type 3 cytotoxins right. and trying to correlate that. Can you, can you kind of flesh that out a little? Right. So, so life is complicated. Not only are we talking about the quantity of bacteria and whether it's uh, doing something to the end organ, but there's actually a variety of pseudomonas. And some pseudomonas may be more detrimental than others. So how would we know that? And we've spent years looking at this type 3 secretion um, apparatus that Pseudomonas has where it injects toxins into cells. And we've actually shown in animals that Pseudomonas that have this ability are far more dangerous to the lung than Pseudomonas that doesn't have this ability. And we've shown in patients that patients who have this kind of Pseudomonas that produces these toxins also is associated with more mortality. And sure enough, we found that the patients who had high burdens, didn't have uh, white counts, didn't have fevers, also had a very high burden of these very virulent pseudomonas. So another possibility to help the clinicians is to look for some kind of measurement that would detect, yes, this pseudomonas is virulent, and so that may be an even faster test than culture and give you the hint that your patient maybe needs treatment even though they don't have fever, white count, but they have all this very virulent pseudomonas. And so, um, I mean, you said you, you did not write this article to change practice, but it certainly triggers lots of thought because, you know, so I'm, let's pretend I'm the average practicing intensivist. I'm trying to balance not missing infection, but I don't want to promote resistance uh, and this concept of antibiotic de-escalation. And it sounds like that 10 years from now, if this all pans out, it's sort of going to be a modified de-escalation, right? Because the idea is, uh, one interpretation, as you were saying, is it would modify the way we define infection, I guess, right? Right. That you would look for end organ damage as well as the presence of bacteria. And that you'd also define the presence of virulent bacteria versus non-virulent bacteria, if we have enough information. I will tell you that there's a phase two trial in France right now using an antibody that prevents type 3 secretion to see if it makes a difference in patients who are intubated. 
because they're at such high risk of developing right. this kind of a clinical situation. That is correct. So these things are going to come into reality in the next 10 years. You're going to see a lot of changes in the way we treat bacteria. I'm not the only person who thinks using antibiotics is probably not going forward to be the only method we treat bacteria. Because we are faced with such increasing resistance, they're going to have a real decrement in the ability to treat infections with antibiotics. So we're going to need other kinds of treatments. And I would suggest that treating disabling bacterial systems might be a reasonable way to protect patients. Um, one sort of last concluding question, and it's just sort of a general one, and then I'll let you make any final comments if you want, is when you were getting patients into this study, um, it took you, and again, I, I did want to get that right, you said it was from 2002 to 2006, so quite a long period of time. Uh, you must have obviously had some sort of target number in mind. Did it take you longer than it you thought it would have to get the number with pseudomonas or whatever? Right. It was the number of pseudomonas positives that took us so long. And although you get a... It, you know, supposedly based on data that we had from our own hospital about a 20% rate, it varies. And it, so that was very interesting to us, too, that the epidemiology did vary over the year. So winter was higher than other times. It varied by patient group. So we actually do have other patients that we're reporting on, and it'll be published in pediatrics. We looked at children. They had slightly different um, outcomes, but still uh, interesting. So... We did collect over that period more patients, but this was just the adult population that we reported on. And I can't remember if you addressed it in this paper or not, I apologize, but did you look at the, the resistance pattern over time for a particular patient, or was that, did that change yes, a lot? we actually did, and that's another paper oh, <laughs> that okay. will be published. So this, what I would say is that um, we got a lot of data just doing an observational study. And again, I would emphasize that Although randomized controlled trials are the gold standard, we still, I think, need a lot more information, and observational trials are very valuable. And from this four-year, this was a SCORE grant, an NIH grant, we, I think, will have nearly 20 publications because we, we're just finishing analyzing the data. It takes a long time to get the data and then sort of an almost equally long time to publish the data. But I think it's very valuable and what we want is to start clinicians thinking that we're not doing the optimal thing. We don't have enough information to do the optimal treatment for our patients. So we need to do, I think research is really important for patient care so that we know what the evidence-based treatment is. And I, I would suggest that we're not there yet. Great. We have had a tremendous opportunity today to speak with Dr. Janine Wiener Cronish. She's currently Chief of Anesthesia at Massachusetts General Hospital in Boston, Massachusetts, and she is a professor of anesthesia and critical care at Harvard. We've been speaking today about her very thought provoking article from her group, published in as the Lead, author, lead article in the September issue of Critical Care Medicine focusing on patients with Pseudomonas aeruginosa who don't have clinical evidence of infection and yet have surprisingly poor outcomes. Thank you so much for joining us today on the podcast. Thank you, Rich. This concludes our podcast for Tuesday, the 16th of September, 2008. Look for future podcasts featuring a wide variety of information important to critical care practitioners, including interviews with authors and discussions with prominent members of the critical care community. 
An email subscription service will let you know when new podcasts have been posted to the SCCM website. Visit www.sccm.org slash iCriticalCare for more information. Critical Care Medicine is the official journal of the Society of Critical Care Medicine, offering the latest information about critical care to healthcare professionals. Members of the Society of Critical Care Medicine receive a free subscription as well as other benefits. For more information, visit www.sccm.org. For the iCritical Care Podcast, I'm Dr. Richard Savell. The Society's annual Congress is the largest multi-professional critical care event of the year, drawing more than 5,000 professionals from around the world. Throughout this five-day event, more than 300 educational sessions, workshops, keynote addresses, panel discussions, symposiums, and more will be offered on broad and specialized topics in critical care. The high-level programming of Congress speaks to all members of the critical care team, exploring the issues and clinical topics that affect most of their daily environment. Mark your calendar for SCCM's 38th Critical Care Congress to be held January 31st to February 4th, 2009 at the Gaylord Opryland Resort and Convention Center in Nashville, Tennessee, USA. Visit www.sccm.org for further information.